Thank you for all the nice emails and the comments that you've been leaving on iTunes. I promised that I would read them from time to time if you guys would send them along, so maybe I'll share one right here. This is a comment left on iTunes by somebody that calls himself Bonehead122. I've learned more about Middle America's music and art from this show than 20 years of working on the labor side of the entertainment industry. Not just insightful, but endearing and warm with breaks of side-splitting laughter. Thanks, Otis. Thank you, Bonehead122, and keep sending those comments and emails, and I'll keep reading them. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee and I have two cats and a dog curled up next to me. It's a pretty good day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Rod Picot. Rod is a singer-songwriter who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and you can find out everything you need to know about Rod at rodpicot.com. I've been friends with Rod for a few years now, but before I'd met him, we'd played a lot of the same gigs, and a lot of them were overseas, but I'd see his name signed in guest books at promoters' houses. I would uh, hear promoters say nice things about him. I would see his posters up at, my, at the clubs that I was playing, and it just felt like I already knew him a little bit. And there's a lot of artists like this that will have these parallel orbits, but we don't really know each other, but we kind of feel like we do. So once I finally met Rod... I did feel like I knew him a little bit, and it was nice to become friends with him. But Rod invited me over to his house in South Nashville, and we sat in his living room and had a really nice conversation, and I'm glad to be able to share it with you guys. Here's Rod Picot. Um, I grew up in a little tiny sort of mill town in uh, southern Maine, right on the New Hampshire border. And um, it was sort of, um, um, it was a town that had a, like a couple of shoe shops and um, it was on a river. And um, it was sort of not really, uh, sometimes I tell people find out that I'm from Maine and they think, uh, you know, you have this image of Maine, but this was right on the New Hampshire border. So it was more, less sort of authentic, (laughs) picturesque Maine. And more sort of, um, you know, um, kind of blue collar. Well, I mean, people think Maine is blue collar anyway, but not so much, you know, lobster traps and pretty cottages. Less, less of that stuff. So, did you play music while you were in Maine? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started. I got, um, you know, I had a little garage band when I was a kid. Um, I had a garage band with a guy named Slade Cleaves, and uh, who I ended up you know, writing a lot of songs with later on. Um, yeah, I mean, we played, it's funny because looking back, you know, 
um, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, it, at the time, it was very rural. I mean, now it's sort of, this is an, an hour north of Boston and an hour south of Portland, Maine. So it's kind of, but at the time, you know, so you think of that and you think, well, wow, that's very close to the cities, actually. But at the time, it was very rural and um, your access to sort of stuff that was music related was really, really limited, you know. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I had a little garage band and we... Um, we didn't even know, uh, you know, when we were kids, we didn't really know that, like, people sort of wrote songs, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it, that concept doesn't even, uh, doesn't really come into play. You just think, oh, these things just exist. So you don't even really think about it. And, um, yeah, we played in my father's garage. And, uh, I mean, we were, this was a horrible band. I mean, we were, it was, it was really, <laughs> I mean, it was genuinely horrible. You know, it was like the worst, worst, we were 14 years old and we could, we could barely play. Everybody else was twice the musician that I was, and they could barely fucking play. So I was like the worst guy in the band, but and I was the guitar player. Um, so it was an awful racket. But we did. We played. We played three times, all at parties, and we were very proud of this. Uh, that all three parties were shut down by the cops. <laughs> it was sort of a you know matter of pride with us. The small victories. Yeah, yeah. And we were, we were, you know, we were looking back. I mean, we were kind of, we were funny kids. We would like, you know, we just played the music that we loved. Like we would play old, you know, sort of. Um, we discovered like blues stuff through, you know, popular bands like through the Jay Giles band. We discovered, you know, um, you know R and B and stuff like that. And so we would play our versions. It's, it's basically we were just playing the chords, you know, and getting the one guy who was wasn't afraid to sing to sing that was it you know we just and um but we you know we would like <laughs> we'd play in front of friends or we'd play these parties and we'd tell everybody oh this is an old eric clapton song that you never heard of and they you know then we would play our <laughs> we would play whatever we wanted to play and people would be like all right eric clapton you know <laughs> I mean, looking back, I was already, even when I was a kid, trying to figure out where I stood with the whole thing or what my sense of it was. You know what I mean? Like, a, I wasn't just sort of hopping from style to style. I was, all, even before I could really play, I had a, an aesthetic sort of sense of, of music and where I stood in it. It was immature and unfinished, but even as a kid, I sort of had a sense of, trying to get a sense of who I was. Did your parents uh, encourage you at all? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they actively discouraged me. Um, yeah, they had a really hard time with it. You know, but that's kind of classic, you know, especially I think. Um, I think with working class people, people, um, if you have parents um, who've struggled, you know, in a in a job that should be sort of a functional job and they've struggled to bring a family up that way. I think that those kinds of people, you know, tend to look at the arts and go, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I bang in two by fours together makes perfect sense to me, but I don't know what the fuck that is. You know what I mean? They just don't have a sense of, um, they had no, and my parents were very, they were lovely people, but they were very, very unsophisticated. You know, they came from, both came from, sort of uh, uh, poor households, especially my father, and didn't have any schooling. And, uh, you know, so they were very, they were pretty unsophisticated people. I don't think they had any sense of, like, 
that it was a job, you know, that you could do it. That it was a, a craft in a way, like you could pursue, you know. So it was pretty scary to them, yeah. It was real simple. I mean, I had I was about 24, 25 years old, and having grown up in that sort of, you know, in the seacoast of New England, and never have, you know, never gone, I had never gone to school and never lived anyplace else. I was just really, you know, at 24 years old, I was really antsy to get out of there. And um, uh, a, a girlfriend and I had been out to the Telluride Bluegra- Bluegrass Festival and I just loved the way Colorado looked. You know, it was just an adventure, and it's beautiful. And uh, I just convinced her, let's go. Let's get out of here. You know, looking back now, I can see that what I was really doing was a lot of people go through this, but I think particularly if you're any kind of performer or if you're, if you're pursuing any, anything in the arts, there, come, there comes a time where, like, the most valuable thing you can do is get rid of the mirror that you that you've had your entire life and 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 like that's a really difficult thing to do in the place that you've that you're from or even near the place that you're from you know at some point you have to somehow get rid of uh, get away from that reflection of all these people telling you who you are from what you were if you're trying to become you know trying to establish something with the work that you do i think that that's really an important thing to do and it was, you know, looking back, it was one of the best things I ever did. It was really, really good for me. So I was, um, I was living in Boulder, and I, I literally saw a sign. On, <laughs> it sounds like a, uh, a scene from a movie, but I literally saw a flyer on a telephone pole of this guy offering uh, this course in songwriting. And he said his name was Stephen Allen Davis and that he'd written these hit songs and stuff. And I thought, wow, this has got to be complete bullshit. Like what successful songwriter is like walking around with a staple gun, you know, (laughs) in Boulder, Colorado. And um, so I called him up and I talked to him. He was kind of interesting. And I, you know, just sort of investigated and met him for coffee or something. He was a really interesting guy, obviously incredibly bright. and, uh, And so I started taking this sort of, um, it wasn't really a class. It was kind of. It wasn't really a seminar. It was sort of like once a week for six weeks, for a few hours, and he would sort of explain how stuff worked. You know, not exactly a class. And sometimes he just sat there and told stories. You know, I mean, back then there there weren't like there was no shelf at the bookstore of like how to write songs. Do you know what I mean? Like this stuff was there was no access to it, so you just had to figure it out, and so. Spending time with this guy who, you know, worked as a as a professional songwriter, writing for publishing companies was incredibly valuable. I mean, just stuff like, you know, here's how a chorus works. This is why it works. And he, you know, Stephen had a really open mind, so it was always like, you know, there's no rules. Here are the rules, and they're there to just guide you to understand that, you know, how it works when you're breaking them and why why that works. And uh. I just got from working with him, you know, he had been a, a songwriter in Nashville. That's where he'd had all his success. For, so um, I just kind of got obsessed. I just thought, man, I can do this. I can go to Nashville and do this. And I uh, loaded up my S10 Blazer and uh, sold a bunch of shit and moved to Nashville. That's how I got here, you know. I didn't know anybody, I didn't know anybody that knew anybody. I mean, I, I had taken that class with Steven, but I didn't. It wasn't like we were friendly or anything, you know. 
I was just, uh, you know, a, a young guy sitting there listening to him talk. Um, so I had no connections and stayed at a hotel for a few days, got a job, got an apartment, and that's it. You know, just kept going. How, what kind of job did you get? Um, I was, <laughs> I started doing a drywall work right out of high school. So that's always been my sort of, I've always had that to sort of fall to, you know, wherever I went. I mean, that's what I did for work, uh, out in Colorado. And that's what I did, you know, as a young guy in new England. And so that's what I did when I got here. I just found a big, a big, uh, sheetrock company to, to hire me to be a finisher. I was talking to Matthew Ryan oh, yeah. a couple weeks yeah. ago. And um, I'd never heard of Guido's, but he was talking about hanging out with Lucinda Williams there. Yeah. And then two days later, I'm over at my neighbor's house, who are young punk rock kids, who are telling me about the awesome all-ages shows they used to go to at Guido's. <laughs> and then uh, I just heard you have an association with Guido's. I did, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Guido's is, this was this little, I don't even know if it's there anymore. I haven't been over there in a long time. It was a little pizzeria over by Vanderbilt. And um, I was in there for an open mic or something one night. And um, I went there every once in a while, and I got to be friendly with the, the owner. And the guy said, um, hey, my host is leaving. Do you want to take over for a little while? I said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do it, you know. Because, uh, I mean, when you, move to a, when you move to a new environment and you're trying to do something that, you know, sort of re- it requires you being a part of the community in some kind of way, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to meet people and, you know, write songs with people and figure the whole thing out. So I didn't really want to do it. I'm not sort of cut out for that kind of thing. But I said, yeah, I'll do it. This will be good for me, even though I don't want to do it. Um, so I started doing it. And then uh, I just kind of got hooked on it. And I thought, you know, I can make this better. If this is, what if I actually invite writers? And so it's not, a, uh, it's not an open mic. Uh, you know, people don't sign up, but I actually invite people that I want to hear. And I just have like five or six people instead of 15 people. And then, I don't know, it just kind of grew. And then I started, the more I thought about it, you know, I, and I started printing it, printing up posters and I like named the show, I called it Rod Picot's Fireside Whiskey Hour, which was, uh, you know, I just did that because I thought it was funny. But it ended up being great because then <laughs> and my name was in the paper every week. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I was like this idiot who didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. You know, I didn't know how any, any, of this, any of this stuff worked. But, you know, everybody in town would look through the listings and there would be like, you know, Rod Pygott's Fireside Whiskey as if it was this big show. And, uh, man, I just met so many nice people. I met some really good writers, people that I still still right with now i only did it for about two years but um are there any names that people would recognize that oh geez you know alex harvey was down there he wrote delta dawn and and um oh names Uh, lucinda williams hung out down there a couple of times i remember she came down to see um uh dwayne jarvis who was showcasing for bloodshot records um uh, sean patrick mcgraw used to play all the time um, I just saw him on uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's show a few weeks ago. I've lost touch with him, but uh, he's still doing it. Um, I'm trying to think, Georgia Middleman used to play. Um, she had a big hit with um, with um, oh, what's his name, the Australian guy. You just mentioned him, Keith Urban. <laughs> Keith Urban. Yeah, <laughs> she had a big hit with Keith Urban last year. So it was like 
you know, people who kind of were investigating doing it and have disappeared, and other people who've gone on to really prosper. You know? I can talk about that. It, it was, but you know, anybody listening to this, I, I want people to know that it's genuine. I'm not like uh, trying to be like, ah, you should have been here then. It's not like a hip thing. It's not like a. Uh, it was just like when I moved here in '94. Um, I can't remember when Gillian's record, record, first record came out. Like maybe '98. I can't remember. Oh, uh, '97. But I mean, that was like part of the the community of people. I mean, I would literally, you'd literally see, you'd go to a club and there, Steve Earle would be hanging out, or John Prine would be hanging out, Gill- Gillian Dave would be hanging out. A little bit later, uh, uh, Ryan Adams was was in town. He was always around. Um. It was just, it felt like, um, it felt like a really fertile um, place for people really trying to figure it out and trying to figure the work out. Not, you know, of course it's exciting and it's fun to see people who, whose work you admire, you know, you run into these people and that's just fun. It's, it's, it's great, you know, because if you, you love their work, you know, it's just a natural sort of thrilled um but it felt like there were so there were a lot of people like myself who were it wasn't about of course you want success of course you're trying to do something i mean you wouldn't work you don't you don't work this hard for this job and so that you can do it in your basement you know you don't performance is part of it you're trying to bring it to people but it felt like there were a lot of people in nashville at that time who were really all about the song and, and about the work. Uh, I felt lucky to sort of get here at a time when it felt like that in town, you know, as you, as you went from place to place. And the community sort of, sort of felt like that. You know, people would get... Uh, I used to hang out at this, this uh, dive bar called Jack's Guitar Bar. And uh, it was over on Nolansville Road. I mean, it was a, it was a dump. I mean, it was nasty, and um, and the but the guy that ran it was just just a real character. I mean, it, it all, uh, you know, the stories that come out of Jack. It, like you know, if Jack had too much to drink, sometimes he'd close the bar by shooting his pistol into the ceiling, you know, <laughs> and just scream, "Everybody, fucking go home!" That happened several times. Uh, so it was that kind of place. But it was also like this gathering spot for, you know, you might see somebody that you'd never heard of, and if they played something that was great, you'd go tell them. You know, you, you, you people would be excited about a great song. You'd be like, man, that's really fucking good. Like, that's a great song. And people were, would treat each other like that, and it was all about, it felt like it was all about the work. Um, well. You know, I'm less connected to the town because I spend so much time on the road. Maybe, maybe it still feels like that. I, I, I don't know. But, but uh, um, it, it was a really special time. I remember another Jacks. I remember uh, everybody talking about this girl, this singer, who was supposed to be really great. And I kept, kept forgetting her name. Kept forgetting her name. I'm down there at Jack's Guitar Bar, and they're like, man, she's coming in. She's gonna, her record comes out tomorrow, so she just wants to play a few songs. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's right. And what's her name again? Her name's Patty Griffin. She comes in, and she, you know, in this little dive bar with her manager at the time, Michael 
can't remember his last name. Uh, you know, they just came in and you know she got up on stage and played for 50 minutes or something and just stunning, just stunning. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that girl can just, just, she can do it. You know, you don't hear that very often. You're, you hear lots of, lots of people are good. Some people are really good. You don't hear people that can do that thing. Oh, it was amazing. This was before I had had any records out. And um, um, I was managed for a short time by a woman named Denise Stiff, who that was Allison's manager. So she managed um, Allison Krauss and uh, Gillian Welch and a woman named Kami Lyle, who was really great. And me, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, so she called me in and asked me if I wanted to drive a truck for Allison. And I said, uh, "Well, I don't really, you know, I don't have my that kind of license. Or I don't have the CDL or anything like that." She said, oh, "We'll pay for, you know, we'll send you over there. It's easy. It's just a merch truck." I w- I thought they wanted me to drive a semi or something. I was like, "No, I don't think I can do that." Anyway, so I go get the thing, and I'm out there on the road, and and then uh, they needed a. Uh, they needed an opener. And, uh, you know, Denise asked Allison, just said, why don't you let, you know, Rod's with you. He's got a suit and his guitar. <laughs> why don't you let him open the show? Allison said, okay, we'll let him open a show. And if, you know, if, it, if, our, if we feel like our audience likes it, if it goes okay, because, you know, whether they, you know, it has to work. And um, it was great. It was amazing, you know. It was very, looking back, it was, it's very touching that they let me do that, you know. And, um, Everybody in the band was really sweet to me, and and uh, remember, I didn't even I didn't even have a record out. I mean, I was just just this guy, you know. And uh, it was great, but I have to say, um, it was the most nerve wracking thing. The first night that I opened for her, because um, this was I went from Guido's, and this is the Guido's the. Guido's place was in the basement of a pizza place. It wasn't the pizza place. You know what I mean? It was the basement of the pizza place. So it held about, you could only get about 30 people in there. You could get 40 if people sat on the stairs that went down into the basement. So I go from that to three, you know, three weeks later after I stopped doing the Fireside Whiskey Hour, I'm opening shows for Allison Krauss in front of 1,500, you know, 2,000 people, something like that. I remember that first night. Just thinking, like, there's no fucking way I can do this. You know what I mean? Like, I got my suit on, my guitar, and, like, the the microphone where I, you know, I had to walk across the stage and, you know, get to the microphone. You know, it looked like it was 500 yards away. It just was, <laughs> it felt like it took forever to walk to the microphone. But uh, it was real exciting. And that was, uh, it was on that tour that I had the, the first show I ever played in my life where I thought, I think I can do this. It was somewhere in Montana. And uh, now you, you, I'm sure you've, like, it's really rare that you have a night that, like, is something really genuinely special about it, like your relationship to the night. You have lots of great nights and lots of, you meet lots of great people. But this was a, a, a an internal thing where, you know, I played the show and I, and, and I, I got back to the hotel and I thought, my God, I, I was good. And I'm like a very self-critical guy, you know? So like to be able to have that conversation with myself and think, man, I, I, I was good. I was actually good. 
is incredibly rare and it was really intoxicating you know that's a good word for it those moments when you're somewhere far away from home and nobody knows who you are and you go play for them if they they have no reason to like you whatsoever yeah you're you're exactly you're onto it yeah yeah and if they dig you you know that they dug you because of what you did it's absolutely genuine yeah. and when you recognize it like that part of it it's really powerful i heard you say once before something about uh you show up to play a gig and you've never met that person and uh you know you play and you have this wonderful evening and this great experience and then you leave and you may never see this yeah. promoter again and um that happens over and over and over in our lives. It's a, it's a very unusual. It's more. It's 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 a job that's more unusual than it even it seems like that, that it is. You know, you don't have, um, you know, for the most part, you don't have sort of ongoing, you know, projects and things with colleagues in this job. Basically, it's just you, and. Uh, you know, you have occasional interaction or things cycle around again. You see people that you've worked with before, but the number of sort of small, intense relationships that you have as you go through your, your work life is just incredible in this, in this job. And your whole, um, you know, in some ways when you're on, your, when you're on the road, it feels like your, the, your whole career sort of starts over every day. In a funny kind of way. That's how I always think of it. I've said that before, but it's sort of how what it feels like, you know. You get up and you you drive, you get the sound check, you meet the people at the bar, you have your dinner, you have a relationship with that audience, and you get paid, and hopefully you had a good experience with the people at the venue and everything. You drive away, and that's it. That's the end of it, you know. <laughs> Just poof, into the night. Something sort of really <laughs> kind of uh difficult and beautiful about that at the same time you know it it is great that you get to sort of uh you know anytime when you have a bad gig if you get to play the next night you you know you really get to go into it feeling like i'm gonna do my job you know like you really challenge yourself and you get to you get to push yourself like that it doesn't have the kind of numbing sameness that, you know, the sort of work week has. That is one of the best things about touring is if you just play once or twice a month, that bad gig lasts for a couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. and you stew on it. But if you tour, you got the next night. To... You can erase it quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also love the easily attainable goals where I have to be at this place two hours from now and then you achieve that and you go on to the next goal if i have to sound check and then you achieve that and you move on and i feel like i can really accomplish some things when i'm on tour that's great that's exactly how i feel yeah it's like a little <laughs> checklist that you kind of well, look at look at the shit i'm getting done <laughs> yeah just checking stuff off yeah drove down the road from point a to point b i'm a genius <laughs> It's an it's an unusual job to have. I mean, people because you because what you do, like your work, is public. You know, everything about it is is sort of public. I mean, you make the work and you put it out into the public, and then you go perform it for the public. So people have this relationship with you 
that you don't have with them. And it causes, <laughs> it can cause this weird sort of thing where, you know, you get people that say stuff to you that you, you just, just sort of don't, that things that just sort of don't make sense, you know, in the sort of normal world. <laughs> I had a woman, um, I did a show in the Netherlands and like as I was walking on stage, this woman sort of grabbed me by my shirt and pulled me down and she said, Rod, I don't like your haircut. It's much too short. <laughs> I just thought, well, you might could have waited till after the show, you know? I don't know. I had a guy in England. Um, I go to England, sometimes I, I bring a band and I had had a band with me the year before. And this guy comes up after the show and he goes, I'm so, so, so glad to see you're playing solo again. I said, well, what, you know, you, oh, I came to the show last year and I, I didn't like it. I didn't like the, it's too much mucky muck and all that. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, okay, you know, it's okay. And he continued on and his, in his, like the next part of his story was, I sort of prefer to think of you as this sort of lonely guy driving all around by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, <laughs> you're thinking a little bit too much about it. But. So I don't know, you get this weird, you know, it's a strange job. I refer to it as a false intimacy. <laughs> it's a, it is a fault in, <laughs> false intimacy, yes, it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a, you run into all kinds of things. Strange job. I did have a, uh, I, had, I, only, I only did this once, and I, and I did get caught by this one guy, but... Uh, you know, occasionally you have really bad gigs. I had this horrible gig at this place. I don't remember somewhere in Maryland. And you're probably like me. I mean, you, you know, you play so many. You play so much. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't really remember. You might remember the name of the place, but you don't remember what it is or whatever. So I booked myself like five years later into the same, <laughs> same joint, and then I drove up and I was like. Oh my God! This is that place. <laughs> this is that place. And I had uh, uh, my girlfriend with me at the time. She was playing fiddle with me. She was like, "What? What?" I said, "I played this place. This is like the worst gig. This is the worst <laughs> gig ever." And she was like, "Just go. Just drive. Just leave." And I was like, "No, I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't do it." Turns out, I could do it. <laughs> I've only done that once, but. Uh, I'm not proud of it. But. <laughs> that was the time? That was it. <laughs> I just drove away, called him up, and I said, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I've wanted to do that. You know times. you've wanted to do that. You know you've wanted to do that. On the other hand, um, you know, the other side of it is people are so generous with, you know, yeah. it's, it's a, an unusual job and the people that sort of um, take you in and, sort of help you help you make sense of it you know as you go along on the road or are uh it's amazing you know it's amazing how kind and generous people are yeah and they make it possible for us to make a living yeah absolutely and they oftentimes don't get anything from the gig themselves other than enjoying it exactly yeah and some you know those people are are special too the people that understand what's happening who understand you know who don't sort of make you um you know entertain them after the show or don't ask anything of you just understand they just understand how hard it is and they, they just want to help you get to the next place it's yeah. amazing yeah we've played a lot of the same gigs for for quite a while and um before i had met you mm -hmm. i knew about you and i knew your name because you were your flyers were always up in the same places i was playing and then if i crashed on the promoter's couch afterwards 
Right. You know, you're one of the folks that had been on that couch also. And uh, it's a strange existence where I feel like I have these <laughs> yeah. parallel orbits with a lot of different yeah, yeah. artists. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. Once I finally met you, I felt like I knew you uh, for a little while. I don't know if you had that same experience. That's a but. great way to put it. Parallel orbits. Yeah, yeah. That's that's perfect. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, yeah. You sort of sort of exist out there in the same world, but never see each other. You know. Yeah. Why would I see? You know, you don't run into each other like unless you were you know sharing a gig. It just never happens. It's funny. I try to put my posters on top of your posters, by the way. <laughs> You're the one that does that. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, inviting me into your living room and, and hanging out today, man. This is great. Thanks for having me, Otis. All right. I'll, uh, maybe we'll get some burritos or something. That sounds good. I'd like to thank you all for listening in, and I'd like to thank Rod for inviting me into his living room in South Nashville and having this conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about Rod at rodpicot.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD or T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can get one of my photographic prints that would look beautiful in your living room or office. You can get one of Amy's records. You can get one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode for free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com, and I might even read it on the air. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.